There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped at 10th and Ranch Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And we're going to cover some of the Idaho quadruple case tonight from an angle, hopefully, that hasn't been absorbed uh, enough. A lot of, I, I think a lot of the broadcast stations are sort of tripping on themselves, trying to come up with some new stories. There is no new stories. There's perhaps... A new angle because of the gag, gag order, no at least uh, qualified information or what we can verify as vetted information is coming through. So, because of our experience in law enforcement, we can talk about things that perhaps the broadcast media doesn't know about, or the angles talk about what what um, we know that they perhaps don't know, and that is the evidence. And that's the most important thing in this case is the evidence and how the evidence is going to be presented. And in our system of justice, it's an adversarial system where the prosecution will present their case and then the defense will try to thwart the prosecution's case by creating doubt, as we know, because the prosecution must create their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And the defense's job is to create doubt. So even one of those jurors out of the 12 will have doubt that the defendant is guilty. And if that one person votes to say not guilty, then the defendant is found not guilty. The case is over and he's found not guilty. So that's the defense's job. But we believe in this case, in this prosecutorial case, that there's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of evidence that the district attorney's office can uh, can present. And what they want to do is they use what's called the reasonable person standard. Uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, re there's that word again, reasonable. And what is reasonable? And what is reasonable doubt? And that's in this case, that's what the judge in his instructions will define to the jury and what is reasonable. And hopefully the people sitting on that jury are reasonable people because not all juries are reasonable. And so that's what we want to present. That's what we're going to talk about tonight is the evidence. How is the prosecution? What do they have? And what are they doing right now? Right now, February 20th, we, need, we know that they don't go back to court until June 26th. Is the prosecution just sitting there waiting no, they're busy working. They're trying to present their very best case. So what are they doing? They're going over the evidence. They're interviewing witnesses, preparing witnesses in the event that this goes to trial, which there's a really, really good chance that this case will go to trial. The only way he wouldn't go to trial is if he pleads guilty. But it looks like he probably will go to trial. So the prosecution right now, is busy. And also all of the law enforcement personnel that worked on this case, the FBI, uh, 
the officers from Moscow Police Department, the Idaho State Police, all those investigators are busy re-interviewing witnesses and picking up evidence, crossing their T's and dotting their I's because the prosecution needs to shine in a case like this. They can't be viewed as unprofessional or unprepared. With me tonight to present this case, of course, is straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. I, I, it's almost like a monologue I, I, I start the, the show with. But we also have another great guest. Well, guest. He's been a, a co-host on the show a number of times. And he's retired NYPD sergeant. And I could say straight out of the Bronx, professor and retired NYPD sergeant, Michael Geary. How are you doing tonight, Mike? Good, Billy. Good to see you, Phil. Same here, Mike. <laughs> so, guys, what we're going to talk about tonight, of course, is the evidence. And when I think of evidence in a quadruple murder case, the first thing, of course, I think about, and this hasn't been spoken about by much of the broadcast media, is the most important evidence in the whole entire case is the four bodies. The bodies have a treasure trove of evidence on them or show evidence in their death they still are screaming out for justice. Phil, you wanted to talk. Go ahead. No, I uh, I was going to uh, jump in there. Obviously, the the uh, the physical bodies, uh, the crime scene examination of the bodies, as well as the autopsy part of the examination of the bodies, may yield some very critical evidence, such as if there's any type of um, obvious DNA, whether it be blood or touch DNA on the victims. Under the fingernails, there could be skin cells of the perpetrator. And if it's linked to uh, Brian Kohlberger, I don't think there's any defense in the world that could come up with an explanation for that. Um, there could be things like hair follicles. There could be fibers. Uh, perhaps uh, if the clothing that he is uh, uh, found to have been wearing, uh, those fibers match something that was taken off the victim's bodies. So all of those things won't will be so paramount to the investigation. And none of that, none of that has been uh, explored or uh, talked about uh, publicly in the media. No, absolutely not. And Mike, you know, when we talk about the crime scene, we think of it from an investigative point of view. And no one has defined or explained the crime scene because no one knows exactly what the crime scene looked like. However, there are experts who responded to this scene. Not only did they respond, but they photographed uh, the crime scene. They measured the crime scene, probably using laser uh, measurements. They also made notes and saw the positions the bodies were in, the blood, the blood spatter, the cast off stains. All of those things, we know nothing about that right now because that has never been released. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, the, yeah. The public is right now at this point is is really uninformed as to the extent of the investigation into the crime scene. Um, the rumors that persist in in a vacuum of information that we've seen really seem to be very negative comments about the way the. Uh, the the uh, crime scene was handled when they see a video of, say, a mattress being put in the back of a pickup truck that belongs to the Moscow, Idaho PD or the, you know, the, uh, the state police in Idaho. But the reality is inside that um, home where the four kids were slain, you know, you do have a lot of traffic in there and they have protocols that they use 
for every single homicide, be it uh, one person dies, two people die, four people die, in a, in a home like this, you're going to have particular order of doing things. And I think the, the public should have faith that uh, the, the Idaho State Police and the FBI have the expertise and the experience if the, if the Moscow Police Department doesn't. So um, there's a lot of information about the crime scene. And I think people should, be, should trust that law enforcement has done a thorough job. You know, Mike, that's one of the discovery things. Of course, that will they'll give that to the prosecutor, uh, the defense at some point, but that's not out yet. So no. we're left to know: was there blood DNA left in the crime scene from the perpetrator? We don't know that yet, don't we? And if no. there is, that's a slight to me. You know, it, some people will still say, "Oh, it could have got there some way. The police could have planted it," but. There's people that will actually say that, and that drives right. me out of my mind. But to me, if there's if there's blood DNA from the perpetrator, I think you can fold up the tent and go home, you know. But again, um, from the prosecution side, also um, DNA from the perpetrator, whether it be blood DNA or other DNA, skin cells maybe of the perpetrator on the bodies of the victims. That's another thing. How do you does a defense attorney? explain that that type of dna got on the bodies of the victims the um bill touch dna touch dna could be on the victim's hands if they in the fight the struggle if they touched his any part of his skin they could have touch dna on their fingers How do absolutely and of course we're all we're what we are all counting on and we don't know for sure is there could be dna underneath the fingernails because of course when this occurred the police uh, as they do in every homicide case, they wrap the, the hands of the victim in paper bags so as to preserve the, um, the DNA. Because when someone is being murdered, especially with a knife, they're fighting for their life. They're scratching, they're clawing, they're punching, they're kicking. There's a good chance that DNA from that interaction could have gotten underneath the fingernails. The hands of a murder victim, and for good reason. Because when people fight for their life, they will scratch and they will claw at their killer like their life depends on it. And it is honestly the very last thing that a victim can do to help the police catch the person that ultimately kills them. Because in that scratching frenzy, the killer's skin cells become embedded under the victim's nails. And if that victim happens to claw at the killer's clothing, fibers might also get lodged under those victim's fingernails. And so bagging the hands of a victim preserves that magical, precious evidence as those bodies head off to the office of the medical examiner for autopsy. And today, a report that that is exactly what happened to these four kids and their bodies. And there was something else that was revealed today, a report that Steve Gonsalves had been informed by the medical examiner that his daughter, Kaylee, that her injuries were more ferocious than her friends, specifically the report. That was a, a while ago, but I just wanted to, to um, let everyone know that, that that happens on every homicide. Professional police will wrap the hands of the victim with paper bags so as to preserve potential DNA that's underneath their fingernails. Look, someone's trying to kill you, you're going to fight you know, they told to fight or flight. You're going to fight. 
it's just, you know, self-preservation is probably the most highest instinct any human being has. Bill? Absolutely, Billy. And um, we call it bag in the hands in uh, the NYPD. Anytime we had uh, a suspicious homicide, uh, we would put paper bags over the heads. It is taped to preserve the evidence, as you spoke about. I believe that uh, the video you just showed, they had uh, bags that were marked right and left. Uh, maybe uh, things have uh, come, you know, uh, further on down the line where they actually have evidence bags for their hands. I don't know, Bill, when you were on the job, did they still use the paper bags or? Phil, when I was on the job, you'd get a paper bag from a bodega. That was yeah. how bad yeah. it was, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and no one from the defense knew that, but you would be like, does crime scene have their own paper bags? Maybe they did. But when we had to wrap something or put, say, put a bloody knife, which you required to put that in a paper bag. Right. We'd go into Santiago's bodega on the corner and say, hey, can we get a paper bag? You know, that's right. about how scientific it was. Yeah. yeah. I see, Mike, you're shaking your head there. <laughs> so a lot of that in the Bronx. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you know what? We we may do what we had in front right. of us. So I guess, you know, Mike, go ahead. You, no, you, you make do with what you have. I mean, you got, you got to do the job. You do the best you can. It's not perfect, you know, like on TV. There we have the uh, victims. I'm going to read out their names, Bill, if that's okay. Sure, go ahead. Uh, Madison Mogan, 21. Kaylee Gonzalez, 21. Ethan Chapin, 20. And Zayna Carnodal, 20. Those are the four precious young victims that were uh, murdered in this uh, situation, this case. Absolutely. So, folks, let's get back to the crime scene. Um, some of the things we're going to be looking at, of course, we talk about the crime scene and the fact that no one has seen that crime scene or witnessed the pictures from it, of course, except the detectives processing the crime scene. And a couple of weeks ago, I think we spoke about, um, you know, people are concerned, of course, with crime scene preservation and crime scene contamination. And one of the, the first thing that you're concerned with with a crime scene is the preservation of life. Uh, so that's the number one thing. So you're going to step all over the crime scene in order to see if potentially you could save the life of the victim or, in this case, victims. In fact, the best friend of Ethan Chapin called the police using DM's phone at approximately 11.53 hours a.m. And he actually went up to the room and discovered the bodies and took his best, best friend Ethan Chapin's pulse so will the defense make an issue of that? You bet they will, because he had to, to do that. He had to step all through the crime scene, perhaps through, through blood, get blood all over his shoes and trapes it through the house. So they will make an issue of that. But is that something that they can really pound upon? No, because here's his best friend trying to see if he's still alive. And even though he wasn't the police, they were there before the police. So what's the number one rule of a crime scene is the preservation of life. So he was somehow de facto acting in the role of the police prior to the police getting there. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that uh, probably it's going to be a harmless thing for the prosecutor to have to worry about. Uh, that gentleman will have to actually probably uh, uh, appear in the uh, trial to explain uh, their actions, you know, um, to do the chronological you know, the chronology of the event from the time it happened to the time that the, the bodies were discovered to the time they called 911. It's an, it's, it provides an explanation to the uh, jury about any uh, sort of 
contamination to the crime scene that was, uh, you know, harmless and probably probably would not alter. It would not definitely not alter any sort of scientific evidence or anything like that to reassure the jury that, yeah, this is what happens in real life when uh, someone is stabbed. A loved one is going to come to them to see if they're alive. Absolutely. And that's understandable. Uh, unfortunately, it makes that young man now uh, one of the first witnesses uh, in the case. Absolutely. And they've been um, very careful not to release his name, which I'm happy they didn't do. Or he would have been mauled by the press sure. and he, he'd have it out there. Um, Pauline Robb, I'm just going to comment on the Zena seemed to be the only one with defense wounds. The others may not have skin DNA, but clothing fibers under the victim's nails. Pauline, that we're relying on unreliable information to say that. We don't know that for sure. The only way we can surely know that is the people that viewed the crime scene and the people that conducted the autopsy, the medical legal investigators who were on the scene. They've haven't, they haven't reported to me or anyone else in the press. The press is getting a lot of their information through leaks, which really, to me, I don't care for that at all. And people in law enforcement that are leaking stuff to the press, shame on them. And I and if they get caught, I hope they get arrested. Billy, I'd just like to comment on, uh, you know, we're talking about the, uh, the crime scene being possibly contaminated. If I was going to uh, address the jury, I would use two words. It's expected and unavoidable. Based on what both you and Mike said, uh, police officers respond to a 911 call. They go there. They have to find out if there's anyone still alive. They have to see if the, uh, the crime scene is safe. Perhaps the perpetrator's still in the location. They're going to do a quick search. They're going to see that they have people that possibly need first aid. So you have the friends that called 911 showing up. Uh, they go into the crime scene expected and unavoidable. You have the police, the first officers that respond there. They want to search the premise to see if the perpetrator is still on the location, still at the location. They want to uh, provide first aid to see if possibly they could save one of those victims' lives. Expected and unavoidable. And then the real pre preservation of evidence at a crime scene is usually done once the detectives are called to the scene. I don't know how much uh, training police officers in that area get about preserving a crime scene. I can't compare it to New York. It's a completely different state, but perhaps the detectives that first respond will say, you know what, guys, we need to start a log. Uh, we can't let anyone in. Uh, you know, anybody that does enter, we have to get their name, obviously for, uh, you know, cross-referencing possible uh, samples of DNA or fingerprints, things of that nature. So again, these are expected and unavoidable uh, contamination of a crime scene that we're going to call it, or just, you know, uh, interacting into the crime scene. These are things that are just unavoidable. Well, that's what we expect. We expect the defense to attack the evidence and the way it was collected. Uh, Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, the uh, Phil's absolutely right. Um, that's what you say to the jury to let them know, use your common sense. This is what police do. This is what witnesses do. Uh, this is what paramedics do. You know, this is what they have to do. This is their job. Um, and then, um, the defense can attack that any way it wants to. Um, and, and, and that's their, that's the defense attorney's job to try to create reasonable doubt. What you hope for is that you do have 12 jurors using their common sense and to say, yeah, you know what? Yeah, that make that makes sense. Yeah. The witnesses get there the, before the police, the paramedics are there after the police, uh, these things happen. It's unavoidable and expected as Phil said, absolutely right. Um, of course, that won't stop the, uh, the defense attorney from doing their job. 
what you hope for is there isn't a single uh, juror who thinks of that term, you know, uh, uh, avoidable and expected and says, oh, it's still contaminated. And I don't know about this. And I don't know about the science of DNA. And then they go down a rabbit hole. So that's, that's but, you know, so that's just part and parcel of uh, the trial game that's going to take place. Uh, Absolutely. You know, you know, Mike, I want to also talk about the, um, there must be a blood trail somewhere in that house. You can't kill four people and not leave blood and not traipse through that blood. And again, there was a, a bloody shoe print uh, that was brought up actually with a chemical. Maybe it was luminol. It was another, I forgot the, it actually wasn't luminol, someone else, some other chemical. But the shoe uh, had like a diamond bottom to it. Now, is that the perpetrator's shoe? Were they able to match that blood evidence to search warrant evidence and rec potentially recover that shoe in two of the search warrants they did? One at Brian Koberger's home in Pennsylvania and one at his apartment in uh, Washington State University. Were they able to recover that shoe? If they are... That's very, very powerful uh, evidence, Phil. You know, you know what it goes to? It goes to the chronology inside the house, that blood trail, because the first, you know, a room that is entered where the homicides take place, we believe it's the third floor, possibly, depending on how you look at the, the wording of the affidavit. But it's possible he might have gone to that place first. And then you go down to the other, uh, other, other Kernodal's room and, and Chapin's room. So there would be blood trail of just two, two uh, of uh, Ms. Gonsalves and Ms. Mogan's blood, perhaps in the hallway. And then if you see another blood trail and it is Chapin's and Ms. Mogan's, then obviously you can figure out the chronology inside the house and the direction in which the uh, killer walked. And that's huge because that then puts the jury into that crime scene and they can actually figure out in their mind as the chronology is unfolding before them, they could figure out the steps the killer took. Billy, um, can I just comment on the blood? Go ahead. Print? Go ahead. Uh, real quick. Um, number one, uh, I think that just because it was in the probable cause order, I think there's going to be a blood trail way before uh, the back door. Uh, I really believe that. I think they just threw that into the probable cause order uh, because they did have to use a chemical, like you said. I can't think of it offhand. I have it in my phone, but I'm not even going to bother. I think it was amino black, I think That's it, was. it. That's it. Amino black. Yeah, That's it. Yeah. They used the amino black. They were able to bring up the bloody print. So that means to me that the blood probably was dissipated over the course of walking from the third floor to the second floor and then out the door. So again, um, do, does he have a pair of shoes that will match that imprint. We don't know the answer to that. And if he does, defense can clearly make a doubt. They can create some type of a doubt. You know, again, Mike, you were talking about whether or not it's a reasonable doubt. And right. I think that's what we're, we're really looking at. You're going to implore the jury to use reason and say, listen, is that reasonable? What, you, what, what your uh, conclusion that defense is coming to now, the defense is going to say, did you find out from the manufacturer how many of those shoes were produced and sold in the United States? It's going to be a very large number. Do we know if there's a receipt tying a pair of those shoes to Coburg? Perhaps there is, which would narrow it down greatly. And I think that something like that would be implanted in a juror's mind and say, this is reasonable. We have a bloody shoe print. It matches uh, whatever the brand was that they said. I believe it was a... Um, 
uh, I forget the exact brand, but of Vans, that's what it was, Vans. And he has a receipt that he bought a Vans shoe or perhaps his mother gave him a pair of shoes as a gift, whatever it is. It's a little piece of evidence. It's circumstantial. However, if they did recover the shoe and they're able to raise that same blood off that shoe, that's something that I would consider slam dunk evidence. Well, there's something else when we spoke about it uh, another time that when we we're talking about evidence, there's individual characteristics and class characteristics. And class characteristics simply are the bottom of every van shoe is the same, made by the manufacturer. But the individual characteristics are how you wear out your shoes and something called pits and fissures in the bottom of your shoe. If they recover that it. shoe and they and they can match that up, I feel like a scientist saying There goes words. the professor. In you. <laughs> <laughs> and if they can match that up to that, that is such powerful, powerful evidence. Again, circumstantial, right, Professor Geary? Circumstantial, but very telling circumstantial evidence is very strong. All it requires is a jury to say, here's the circumstantial evidence. Is, is it pointing towards the defendant's guilt? Um, can, can I make that logical leap that all these little bit nuggets of information lead to one person? And so, you know, people think, oh, it's circumstantial evidence case. It's very poor. Uh, it's a very iffy case. It's really not certain. Uh, you know, that's, people don't realize, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. In most cases, there's circumstantial evidence where a person does not, the accused does not um, actually uh, confess to the crime. Everything you've got, other than maybe uh, a video clip of the person actually committing the crime, other than that, surveillance video, uh, turning the cell phone on and off, the, you know, the pinging of the cell phone towers, all of that is circumstantial evidence, and it is absolutely strong as any type of evidence you could have. Absolutely. And you know something, all of these things, again, we're pointing out, and you go back to the reasonable man, that's a reasonable woman uh, on the jury. And that word reasonable is really so important because not everyone is reasonable, you know, and uh, the judge will de uh, define what reasonable means. The other thing I think that they're going to attack and, um, is eyewitness testimony. And of course, the eyewitness we're referring to is DM, who has been known as DM, uh, one of the roommates who purportedly may have, may have seen Brian Koberger, if we believe he's the perpetrator, and sees him walk past her. And there's two different stories, which that could create doubt for the jury. The two different stories are, she was so paralyzed by fear that she couldn't do anything. And the second story is that she thought there was a big party going on upstairs and he was just one of the participants and she didn't think nothing of it. So that right there creates a little doubt. And I'm a little concerned with that, I, I must say. Phil? Bill, I am concerned with that. And at first I thought it was highly suspicious. The first uh, law enforcement uh, comments on that was they were puzzled by it and it was in, uh, they believed it was uh, an issue of intoxication or fear. However, we do have some information. We don't know if it's actual uh, fact, but Ashley Banfield reported that she believed she had called out that she was trying to sleep and that uh, uh, she believed there was a party going on at the time. And when she encountered this individual 
the perpetrator leaving uh, the location that she believed to be one of the party goers or some type of a prank. So again, that sounds very logical and reasonable to me. If that is what comes out of DM's mouth when she does testify or whatever she told to the investigators, which would be memorialized in reports, whether it be on video or written. Uh, if that's what's said, that sounds completely logical to me. Don't forget, it was a Saturday night. We knew that there were parties in the past. We brought this up before. Perhaps she had been drinking, didn't quite uh, you know, uh, grasp what had been taking place in that house, thought it was a party, and thought maybe it was some type of a prank. Now, don't forget, people wearing uh, a surgical-type mask after the pandemic is not unusual. So if she sees someone, oh, okay, he was dressed in black, he had bushy eyebrows, and he had on a mask. In a moment of, you know, half grogginess from sleep, possibly maybe even some uh, alcohol intoxication, it wouldn't seem that unusual. So again, in the beginning, yes, I thought that was extremely, extremely odd that eight hours before someone called the police and a person had actually seen the perpetrator. But now with that explanation, if it holds true, I think it's actually quite, you know, uh, understandable. Well, you know, DM also heard someone say, uh, it's okay. I'm going to help you. Now, I, my first question as an investigator was, did you recognize the voice? Was was it a male voice? Yes, it was. Was it Ethan's voice? No, it wasn't. Then it must have been the perpetrator's voice, right? Those were the first two questions I would ask to definitively find out, you know, and eliminate things right there. Now, that to me also, it's okay, I'm going to help you. That's saying something's wrong up there. It's not a party. It's something's wrong. You know, Billy, I just the thought just popped into my head. If I was on the defense side, which I'm not, I'm always on the prosecution side, uh, the first thing that I would bring up, as, you know, cross-examining a witness that says about that, you know, DM is going to say, uh, I heard, them say, don't worry, I'm going to help you. Male voice, okay. Was it Ethan? No. Uh, was there a delivery there uh, not long before? Did you get a delivery from uh, Uber Eats or whatever it was, DoorDash? Uh, like you stated in the past, there were other people present at parties at different times at 4 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night. Could it have been one of those people? Again, you're going to be creating the doubt that, yes, it's, it's a male voice and it's possibly Brian Kohlberger. Again, these are the things that defense attorneys will bring up. Absolutely. Folks, I'm just going to, um, before we move on to the next um, the next little bit of evidence we're going to talk about, I just want to, uh, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell and share us with your friends and family. Make sure you put a like uh, in that chat. If you want to support us financially, we have a uh, Patreon with three different levels. And if you want to join our YouTube channel, our YouTube family, you can see the folks in the green font. There are friends, our fans, our subscribers, and we really appreciate them. Uh, they're part of the Police Off the Cuff family. I won't call it a nation. It's not a nation yet. It's a family, but uh, join us. Um, That's right. It's our family. It's our friends, it's our, our family. families, and our subscribers. I like that, Bill. That's right. Um a Dr. Kat, um, Catherine Coleman, um, she said that DM may have been paralyzed by fear, uh, fight, flight, or freeze. But you can't have both. You can't have that, and you can't have, oh, I thought it was a party. 
You can't have both of those things. So which one is it? And I think that's why maybe we don't know the truth because we're, get, again, not getting it from the horse's mouth. Where did that expression ever come from? But we need to get it from the horse's mouth. And we're not. We're getting it from the media. We're not getting it from the police. We're not getting it from the detectives, the investigators. We're not getting it from whoever may have interviewed DM. So whether or not that is true or not, Mike, what are your thoughts about that? Um, I In the beginning, you know, uh, we look, first looked at the uh, arrest warrant affidavit. And we, we first found out uh, about DM and her uh, what she had said to the police. Um, you know, my my feelings have evolved. I I, I think that what the what the public uh, is worried about is you know it, is the accuracy of what she has to say. Um, the who said the male voice perhaps said it's okay. I'm going to help you. Um, I think the but I I and I, and I don't really have a problem with her appearing confused at all because she's a young lady. Uh, she may have thought there was some sort of little party, you know, just a couple of people still hanging out, maybe drinking in the house or whatever it happened to be. Uh, I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. And I don't think that she's lying in any way, shape or form. She's confused. Uh, maybe she was paralyzed with fear. That is, you know, conjecture on someone's part. Um, I think the most important thing she gives, and this doesn't have anything to do with being confused. I think the most important thing she can give to the investigators that she gave to the investigators as she can give to a jury at a trial is to say she saw a gentleman with bushy eyebrows walking by her room at a certain particular time and actually walked out of the uh, house. And that kind of puts the timeline from the DoorDash guy to the what she said she saw at a particular time. It puts everything into a small box, small little window of opportunity for the killer. So I think that's her real value is is just that everything else about i'm not sure why i thought it was this or i didn't think it was this or how could anybody think that she thought it could possibly have been this all these little rabbit holes you know mike i'm just trying to play i'm trying to play devil's advocate here i'm not trying i'm not saying and look i want to give her all the room she needs because she's obviously a young traumatized young lady however it can't be fight flight and paralyzed by fear and Oh, I thought exactly. there was a party it upstairs. It can't be both of those things. Just before, Phil, you go, I know you want to go. I, I want to raise this a little bit of humor here. And this is great. You, I'm not Obama. I'm not Obama. From the horse's mouth, this idiom comes from British horse racing circles, likely because the presumed ideal source for racing tips would be the horse rather than the spectators. That, that's great. I love that. Or riders. I'm not Obama. Thank you so much. You're uh, great. It adds a little rumor, it adds a little humor, not rumor, humor to the show. Yeah. Thank you. I, I just want to shoot down the the frozen, uh, you know, she, she's frozen in fear, uh, you know, uh, ideology on this thing. Because if that were the case, she's frozen in fear, she locks herself in a room, she waits until she hears the footsteps leave or whatever, or the door, you know, the car pull away, whatever it is, and then you call the police. I don't think that you're going to wait eight hours. That's why I don't believe the frozen in fear uh, conspiracy theory or whatever you want to call it. To me, I think that uh, that's highly unlikely. Again, we don't know. Like you said, Bill, we're going to get it from the horse's mouth, from DM, and I think that that'll be able to uh, just put everything to rest and we'll get the truth, whatever she was thinking. Absolutely. And and that leads to 1158 AM still in the AM. So DM goes to sleep and somehow some other students came over to the house and Ethan Chapin's best friend who has still not been identified, which is great. I'm glad 
they have not identified him because he would be, been harassed and the press would be up his butt uh, minute one. He calls 911 at 11.58, and I would assume that's after he had gone up the stairs, viewed the bodies, taken the pulse of Ethan Chapin. Now he calls 911. And I think what was reported was that there was someone unconscious. They didn't say there were uh, dead people upstairs. They said someone was unconscious. That was the the reports. Now, that's going to be recorded. There's going to be a 911 tape of that. Has that been released to the defense yet? We don't know. We know it hasn't been released to the press or to the broadcast media because you know they'd have it all over the air by now. And that's one of the reasons I'm glad the police held that back because this poor young man, his best friend's been slaughtered, murdered, and you're going to put his voice all over national television. So that's that's going to be a big piece of evidence also. Professor Mike. Yeah, remember um... – I, I think they're doing everybody a favor by withholding a lot of this evidence uh, for, to hold, tamp down speculations and wild rumors. Um, at the hearing coming up in, in June, it's going to be that, that probable cause preliminary hearing. And so these, the uh, level of proof necessary at that particular um, event is going to be just to establish probable cause. It's going to be like a little miniature trial. You're going to actually have a few uh, live witnesses but I think uh, the prosecution is not going to do the whole chronology from, you know, A to, to Z, starting with uh, DM or this young man who came over to the house and then go through the DNA evidence. I think they're probably just going to put it, put on a couple of strong witnesses, most likely a homicide detective and a crime scene detective and perhaps the Emmy's office and to talk about the uh, what they saw. Um, and the DNA to link. Remember, it's only they only have to prove probable cause at this point and to just to link Koberger to that crime scene. And I think that's about all they're going to do. They're going to keep these young people who are like 19 and 20 years old away from the spotlight, I think, as long as they could away from the defense attorney as long as they could. You know, Mike, just to define probable cause for our audience, probable cause is just facts and circumstances that would allow a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed and that the person arrested committed the crime right out of the textbook. That's right. I love it. Every time you do that, Bill, I get chilled. (laughs) Listen, I just want to comment about the unconscious on a 911 call. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of conjecture here, but I think this is reasonable. Uh, 911 operators are trained that, you know, someone calls in, there's something going on here, there's a person stabbed or bleeding or whatever, and they're going to ask, is the person conscious? That's one of the first things they're going to ask to try and assist in giving first aid. They can actually direct people to actually do CPR or give first aid. So perhaps when they say, no, they're not conscious, she types into her computer, unconscious, gets the, the 911 call out to the responding offices. That's how I believe the call came in as an unconscious. Listen, when you hear that four people were slaughtered eight hours before, it does sound a little unusual that the call came in as an unconscious because the first thing you're going to do, you're going to feel for a pulse. You're going to see that these people are obviously dead. Eight hours had passed. They bled out. They're not going to, you know, they're going to, the color's going to be out of them and different things like that without getting too graphic. But the bottom line is, is that I believe that an unknowing operator gets a 911 call. Her job is to try and assist with first aid and get uh, emergency response there. So I think that's how the uh, unconscious call came about. You know, the other thing on the scene, when the police arrive at the scene, 
that is one of the first things that uh, a, a trained detective does. He notes the time that he arrived on the scene. He notes in his in his notebook who's on the scene, takes the names and addresses and telephone numbers of everyone on the scene because everyone who's on that scene is a witness now, has to be interviewed, must be interviewed. So right now, we know nothing of that. We don't know who was on that scene. What did they say? What did they see? We don't know any of that. So that's a huge, what I'm trying to say is a huge part of the investigation. And again, these are all the things that, you know, I know the media is chopping, chopping at the bit to, to give new information, and there is none, but they don't know the results of what we're talking about now, the results of interviews, which leads me right to one of the biggest parts of homicide investigation, which, of course, is something called victimology, studying the background of the victim. What is there anything in the victim's background that caused the victim to become a victim of this murder? And that's the big question. What is their, you know, what is their alcohol uh, use, drug use? Do they use alcohol? Do they use drugs? Their sexual habits, friends, family, do they drive a car? Where's their car? All of those things, answers to questions that you wouldn't even think of now may be answered through some of those questions that we're asking. And that's all in the victimology. So we can't minimize that. What did the police find out through doing victimology or uh, victim backgrounding is another word for it. It's maybe easier to understand. We all know ology means the study of. So the study of the background of the victim. So all of that is so important. Again, no one in the press knows what the police found out with that. They may have found out some really extremely pertinent information, some real investigatory information that is super important. You know, Billy, I think that uh, his past behavior might come into the victimology. Now, do we know if, in fact, there was some type of interaction with any of the victims and BK? Because we have his cell phone records. Perhaps they're going to check all of the victim's cell phone records to see if those cell phones were hitting the same location at the same time. And they can go back one year from the time that they start the search. So, again, that might be something that might be relative to the victimology. Was Brian Koberger in the restaurant where those two young ladies work, the vegan restaurant at some time when they were there and their phones were pinging at the location. So those are some of the things that I think, uh, again, maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, they were in a store together or uh, perhaps had a same type of a frat party together. We don't know the answers to those things. There's many, many things that are in that case folder. And you just brought up a ton of interviews that had to be done uh, in the first days because all of the people that were present in that home had to be interviewed. Any EMS personnel, any police officer that responded there, uh, any detective crime scene, all of those people are being interviewed. You know, Phil, when I used to teach criminal investigation and even homicide investigation, one of my favorite sayings was, how do you find things out? And the kids would look at me, oh, you ask questions. questions. And what do questions give you? They give you answers. And what the answers give you? More questions. That is how you build a pyramid of, of a case. That is how you build your case, is by asking questions, getting answers, asking more questions. And I'm oversimplifying, but that is investigation 101. And sometimes you got to start at investigation 101, and then you start building it. And that's where 
experience comes in. What do we do next? Where do we go next with this case? And a lot of the things in this case, of course, we all watched it from the beginning. So much of it was bullshit with all the people that became suspects. Oh, did you see the guy by the food truck? He did it. You know, his hoodie, he looked suspicious. He was looking at, you know, it was all nonsense. The ex-boyfriend. Yeah, the poor neighbor that was walking around who was the law student. Oh, that guy. He gives me the creeps. Hey, that's good. I'm glad you got the creeps, but he didn't do it, you know? And it's like, we lived through all of this. And now when we see the press chomping at the bit because there's no new information because of the gag order and they're inventing stuff and putting, you know, it's it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Billy, are we going to talk about the knife sheet and the... We're, gonna, uh, we're getting there. Don't jump. Okay. Don't, no, don't I just jump. wanted to know because... <laughs> I wasn't sure. Getting, yeah, I, I have a method to my madness. I am okay. Going, what I want to talk about, we're almost we're almost there, but um the forensic examination of the crime scene. Is there anyone that knows anything about that? Has the press, has the New York Times written about it? Has Ashley Banfield spoken about the forensic examination of the crime scene? Has she talked about blood spatter? Has she talked about cast-off stains from the knife? Has she talked about Anything that a forensic detective would see, she talked about the photographs, the um, electronic uh, view, excuse me, the laser measurements in the crime scene. She hasn't talked about any of that. No, but does that exist? Yes, it does exist. So that's evidence that law enforcement knows that, guess what? The press knows nothing about it right now. Mike, I could see you blinking away and getting crazy there. No, no I just want to, I just want to go back real quick for one second, if you don't mind, Bill. Go ahead. Go ahead the, the, the victimology part, part as and Phil alludes to this. You know the victimology part when you're interviewing witnesses to find out about the victim's background. You're you're not you're also you're not only are you looking to see if there's any positives connection between certain people, but any negative connections. And you're also you're so you're eliminating a lot of people. You're eliminating people in her mm -hmm. life who may be a former boyfriend, a former girlfriend, uh, someone she owed money to. So victimology, not only is it a, a, a eliminating, a, looking for positive people who may be a suspect, it also is, a, is hopefully a, eliminating a lot of people who may have had some sort of interactions with her, just random interactions. And that's really important. Uh, as far as the crime scene is concerned right now, it's, um, it's all up in the air as to what the, uh, as to what's going to be presented at the, uh, tri at the uh, preliminary hearing, the probable cause hearing in June. Too much speculation, and uh, and I, I think that uh, they the, the press doesn't really want to believe that there's probably has been a very thorough job done with the crime scene, as good as any crime scene analysis in any other homicide, and uh, and that's driving them crazy, and they're and they're and they're jumping at any sort of little tidbit of information that they could possibly come up with to try to make some hay out of, almost as if they're actually working for the defense. It's like over analysis of, of, of like secondhand information. Well, you know, I always remember in the beginning, it was like, first of all, the press wasn't happy that it took so long to arrest someone. And it really wasn't so long. No. This was a major, major, major investigation. The murder happened on November 13th. I think the arrest was December 30th. That wasn't fast enough for them, though. I think they, they wanted speed, and they wanted accuracy. And they weren't happy that there was only 101 pieces of evidence. They weren't <laughs> happy with that. 
this should be 200. Well, I mean, like, where do they get this stuff to critique the case with? Oh, there's not enough evidence. Like, where, who, who told you that? You know, where'd you get that from? And all of the other crap that they threw out there that, you know, made this case, you know, just uh, almost like a National Enquirer thing. No, this is a real quadruple murder investigation. And the police and the FBI and the Idaho State Police are trying to do a thorough, thorough investigation without putting every single thing in the press. Because you see what's done when the press doesn't get information. What do they do? They simply make it up. (laughs) I'll take one piece of evidence if it's the right piece of evidence on a case because it leads you to a person. And then obviously you can conduct further investigation, interviews, background on that person and perhaps you can lead it'll lead you to other evidence so you know listen uh we know there's always going to be conspiracy theories that's why we like to keep a case very close to the vest we don't want to let out too much information we know bill you know mike you know in the past with dcpi in new york and the mypd things get let out that we don't want out there and things tend to blow up so i don't have a problem with them being tight-lipped i like the idea of the gag order uh, you know, we do have a lot of information. Though I think we have a lot of evidence. I listed 10 pieces that are on my notes just for today. That I could probably come up with more, but uh, there is a lot out there. I'm glad there's a gag order. That's the proper way to uh, conduct an investigation of this nature. Folks, I just wanted to also, for those that, I'm sure there's people right in this chat that have probably uh, been to a homicide crime scene. I know there's police, there's cops in the chat. However, there is a certain... Um, order of things. And the one of the orders of things, of course, at a homicide location, EMS or some medical professional personnel is going to respond to the scene. They must pronounce the person, in this case, person's dead. That is part of the procedure. Such and such pronounced DOA at whatever it was, 12, 12.30 p.m. hours. That is one of the checklist things that they must do. Who pronounced by EMS technician Johnson pronounced him at 12.30 p.m. That is a necessary component. After that, if they're, once they're all pronounced dead, now it's the work of the crime scene unit. They do their work first because they have to have the, the whole crime scene untouched. They photograph, they do all their measurements, they do all uh, the collecting of evidence. Once they're finished and that that could take 24 hours then some another body comes along and i don't mean that dead body i mean medical legal investigators who work for the chief medical examiner's office most of them at least in new york city they're physicians assistants so they have a lot of education they go and they do the forensic examination of the body which would include body temperature location of the wounds possible cause of death Uh, They look into the eyes for petechial hemorrhaging, uh, things like that. So that's their job. And then they would, of course, prepare the bodies to put in body bags and take to to the morgue awaiting, of course, autopsy. And the next thing, of course, would be the autopsy, which would be done by a pathologist. So all of this, there's another um, area of evidence that none of us know about. None of us right now, and it's February 20th, no one knows the results of the autopsy. Is there a person in this, in the chat or on this panel that knows the results of the autopsy? Nope. 
No, we don't. And that is going to be a smoking gun, slam dunk piece of evidence that we are all awaiting to see. And that, of course, will also go as discovery information to the defense. Mike. I think uh, the most important piece of evidence, the single most important piece of evidence is going to be um, the DNA because um, that's not uh, that's scientific. Second most important piece of evidence uh, that you're going to have for the jury is going to be the cell phone data and, you know, that sort of thing. So we can figure out his location and the fact that he actually uh, appears to have driven back to that location with his cell phone on around nine o'clock in the morning, uh, the day of the homicides on that Sunday. Uh, so those are the really uh, most important two most important things, uh, testimony of, of uh, witnesses like uh, uh, um, DM and things like that. Um, that's important too for the jury, but the most convincing piece of evidence are that electronic evidence and that scientific evidence. And, um, you know, we will see it when it comes in the trial. We'll probably get a little preview of it, obviously, to establish probable cause in June. But um, that's those are the two most important tidbits of information. And uh, I think that will, uh, I'm, I imagine at that point, um, there will be uh, a lot of people will be in the news media will feel a little bit of satisfaction at that there is a real uh, tremendously strong case of Kohlberger. This was not guessing that, oh, he might be the guy. No, they had this guy dead to rights uh, through the DNA evidence and the cell phone evidence. I, I agree with you, Mike. And, you know, we had mentioned very, very early on before anyone, uh, uh, you know, the, the day after the, this happened, we had mentioned that uh, electronic uh, technique called geofencing, mm -hmm. which I'm still amazed that it exists. And I'm still amazed at the scientific evidence of it. And that's somehow they can pull up every electronic device used in a certain area at a certain time. That is unbelievable. So even though he did not have his cell phone on when he committed these murders, you know, they, they, they went back even further. They went back months before. And, uh, of course, you alluded to, they found that he had reconned this location 12 times. How is that ex explainable? And I guess the defense attorney could say, oh, he just likes driving around the area. You know, I, that's not reasonable and it's not believable. But – geofencing and the cell phone technology. And then again, we we spoke about the Bluetooth that he possibly could also have come up on the Bluetooth of Kaylee Gonsalves. And that is, I mean, again, to me, that is such powerful, powerful evidence. Phil, I can see you chomping at the bit there. What do you got? A couple of things I want to say about the autopsy. Uh, the examination of the bodies is going to show, obviously, knife wounds. Now, we don't have the knife recovered that we know of. Uh, what the autopsy results and the medical professionals can provide, though, is that the knife wounds would be consistent with a K-bar knife. Now, uh, the way that the K-bar knife is designed, uh, the part, the sharpest part of the knife 
would have almost like a V pattern at the bottom of the stab wound and the top would be a uh, thicker mark and it would leave almost like a tattooing on the skin as well as, uh, you know, they would examine and, and take uh, close up pictures of the wounds. And you would also see possibly, uh, we don't know if uh, a piece of the knife bro broke off inside one of the bodies, which happens sometimes in stabbings. So again, uh, they're not going to be able to say this is the exact knife, but they're going to say it's consistent with a K-bar knife. And we know about the sheet, which we're going to talk about. The other thing I wanted to talk about was... Um, the fact that he went there at nine o'clock in the morning. Now, again, social media probably blew up when the four murders, you know, those were there. I'm sure they started texting their friends. It probably hit social media rather quickly, but that was after 12 o'clock. He's there at nine o'clock in the morning. What prompted him to be in that area at nine o'clock in the morning, other than his inquisitiveness of what he had done a few hours before. That's the, the, the uh, statement that I would make to the jury if I were prosecuting the case. And I don't think that there's a really good defense on why he would be in the area at that time. Now, as far as the recons, you know, perhaps looking for an address, a party, a location, they could come up with any number of things. But on that morning, him going there at nine o'clock in the morning, and it still hasn't hit the media or the press or social media or any of that, that's pretty powerful, I think. That's the behavior of a mass murderer and of a serial killer. And yes. that's their behavior. I just want to play a little bit of this and you'll get the point and we'll be go right back to. Expert for Reliance Forensics. He's board certified in data security. He's a former cybersecurity analyst for the CIA. He's also a former prosecuting attorney. Mwah, chef's kiss. You are perfect, Clark, for this. Mwah. Get me sort of on and off the ledge on this because I always want to know that there's lots of evidence. If you're going to bring a guy in and charge him with quadruple murder, I want to know that there's lots of really good evidence. This would seem like it would put a guy right in the room alongside the DNA on the knife sheath. But why might it not work? Let's, let's just look at the other side. Why might this not work? Right. Uh, so your phone, as you know, when you're walking around with it, it is trying to talk to the rest of the world any number of ways, right? Um, Bluetooth and your cellular antenna and near field communication. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those attempted handshakes that you just referenced are necessarily being recorded. Not every single action that your phone takes is necessarily going to stick with that phone if a forensic examiner were to look at it days, weeks, months later, um, yes, that handshake could have occurred, but is there going to be a record of it on the device that a forensic examiner can pull back? Okay, so let me take that one step further, and I'm going to just be you know, full disclosure here. I am a complete idiot when it comes to this stuff. I have to hit all the buttons 100 times and then reset just to get something to work. But I do know this, my phone is connected to my Bluetooth speaker and my phone knows when I go from portrait to landscape and it keeps that as a record as I learned in the Murdoch trial. What if yes. Kaylee's speaker uh, was connected to her phone? Because presumably they're all up on the third floor, right? You're gonna have right. your phone upstairs when you go to bed, even if you're 50 feet away in the other bedroom. Will that perhaps keep a record? Uh, that would keep a record. And so have you ever noticed, you know, you'll spend a night in a hotel and you'll not come back to that hotel for months and then you'll go back to that hotel and it will automatically connect your phone back to Wi-Fi like you'd been there the day before. Um, your iPhone does keep a record of what Wi-Fi networks you've connected to, um, certain information about those networks, the name, the password. Um interesting. Very interesting, right? Again. Yeah. 
we talk about slam dunk or smoking gun evidence. That's pretty, pretty damn powerful if they do have that evidence. Yeah, Billy, I think that uh, if his phone is somehow linked to some type of a Bluetooth speaker or Wi-Fi connection in that house, that places him at the location. I don't think there's any d disputing, or at least it places his phone there. And again, the argument can be made, well, maybe he didn't have his phone, but nonsense. His phone was never reported missing would be to redirect on that. And uh, I don't think that uh, it's really beyond any reasonable doubt that if that is the case, that that's his phone. And that puts Bill. him there. Joe Murray, attorney at law, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, where you could email Joe at Joe at jmurray-law.com. And I just did that from memory because I can't find the sheet. But Joe is a tremendous criminal defense attorney and a big supporter of police off the cuff. Excellent job, Phil. Now we're getting to early on in this investigation, of course, before we had a perpetrator in custody, there was the white Hyundai Elantra, right? Which was, we remember when they first came out with that, and we said, oh, it's a witness. We're just looking to talk to that. I knew minute one that that was not a witness. That was the perpetrator's car. And they had that on video, backing up into the parking lot, actually three different locations driving up and down the block, and then at some point parking the car back there. And then, of course, we had the video uh, from the gas station further away from uh, the, the crime scene. And that was given to the police from the gas station uh, employee who looked and saw, oh, there's a white Hyundai on this at around the time that would have been suspicious for him fleeing a crime scene. And then Washington State University security discovers a white Hyundai Elantra owned by one of their students by the name of Brian Koberger. That was the biggest piece of smoking gun evidence right in the very beginning. Mike. Yeah, the uh, the, the fact that uh, Washington State you know, University and the police really, they were not. They're, they're college security. They're professionals that do that one job. And they contributed in a, an amazing little piece of evidence. The fact that, you know, they have his car leaving Washington State University at a certain time, like two o'clock in the morning or something like that and coming back like 4.30, 4.45, um, and the cell phone going on and off, matching up with the times that the campus security get uh, the, the campus security cameras come have him coming and going. Uh, that is a wonderful, great piece of, of, inf of information that matches because you have a unit that is not connected to the uh, homicide investigation in Idaho. It's Washington State Police, and what they have matches perfectly with what happened in the in in Idaho and his tremendous confluence of two separate jurisdictions that you know we're not working together at that point coming up with this information looking back in their records and saying oh we have a white Hyundai leaving at two o'clock in the morning and coming back at 4 30 here are the pictures of it on our cameras at the entrance of our school parking lot it was it's tremendous it was it was amazing Francesca 
I just want to answer your question. If someone is Jewish and is the victim of a homicide, can their family reject an autopsy, police off the cuff? Well, they can reject, but they can be overridden by the office of the chief medical examiner who will make the ultimate uh, decision. But that's interesting because there was a case on the Upper West Side, and I wish I could remember the name right now, but the husband killed the wife by drowning her in the bathtub. And the family was Orthodox Jewish, and she was buried without an autopsy. And then the family post-death became very suspicious of the husband. And they actually had the body exhumed and the autopsy done, and they discovered she was murdered. And the husband was uh, suspect numero uno. Subsequently, he was arrested, and it was years after the actual crime. He was arrested, went to trial, and got convicted. So I hope, Francesca, that answers your question. Complicated uh, issue, but uh, a homicide would override the um, the protestations of the family for religious purposes. Uh, Billy, if, there, if there's a, a suspicious homicide right from the jump, I think almost no time would there be a, an override of an autopsy. You'd, you'd get an autopsy. I mean, if police respond to, let's say, a drowning and it's very suspicious at the onset, I think that uh, there's going to be an autopsy 100%. With regard to the white Elantra, I just want to play a little uh, defense attorney here. Maybe uh, I don't want to second chair Joe Murray on his next trial, but uh, questions that I would be asking whoever was testifying to the video evidence, I would ask, well, do you know how many uh, white Hyundai Elantras in that year are in the area? Uh, do you know how many are registered in Pennsylvania and Washington? Uh, I'm sorry, in, in Idaho or in Washington. And those are the things where you would create doubt um, with regard to the video evidence. And then I would also say, well, uh, this video evidence, can you see the plate number of the vehicle? Is there any discerning marks on the car that you can say are uh, the exact vehicle that is owned by Brian Kohlberger? Can you see who's inside the car? Uh, different things like that. And then he had his phone, cell phone turned off. Is there any other evidence, electronic evidence, cell phone evidence that would uh, coincide with the vehicle being at that location at that time? And the answers to those things would probably be no. So again, that's what a defense attorney would do. Now, again, is it reasonable to believe that it's him? Yes, of course it is. We have it leaving the uh, college in Washington at some point. It, it shows up a short time later and we would you know, map out the uh, distance and the time it would take to get to the location where the homicides occurred and you see the car on video. So again, it becomes reasonable, but you have defense attorneys. They're going to try and create doubt in every piece of evidence. I just wanted to raise another uh, question. I reported on this incorrectly uh, recently, I think on my uh, Coffee with Cannon broadcast today. He changed the plates on his car. And it would have made sense. I wasn't thinking correctly. He changed from Pennsylvania, which does not have a front plate on the car, to Washington State. But then he was going back to Pennsylvania. So he that seemed premeditated that he was doing it exactly to cover up because what are the chances maybe they got my plate on one of these cameras? And that's why he did it, not because he was – it didn't make sense to change the plates to Washington because he was leaving. He was going back to Pennsylvania. Bill, perhaps when he went back at 9 o'clock in the morning, he saw some video cameras and said, you know what? 
or he may have gone back uh, several times or just gone into the area and saw video cameras and realized I got I got to change my license plates. And that's what he did, apparently. And like you said, five days after the murders, he changes his license plates to Washington State plates and he's going back to Pennsylvania. Totally. Especially he lost his job and possibly was even going to leave school. All of these things happening doesn't make sense. So defense attorney Mike, what do you think about that? Circumstantial, but pretty good evidence, right? Oh, yeah. Circumstantial is solid circumstantial evidence. But of course, you know, the, the defense attorney has to ad- zealously advocate for the client. So they're just going to tell the jury, look, you know, he's innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. He's like like you, the members of the jury, don't you register your car and change your plates and do that sort of thing that you're supposed to? Um, you know, he didn't know that at that point that yeah, that's what they'll say. You know, he didn't know at that point that he would be leaving. He was planning on coming back. He wanted to come back to Washington State University in the worst way. So he was actually going to move his uh, residence from Pennsylvania to Washington State. So he's just being a very good motorist and a very good citizen and complying with all the laws. I mean, it sounds silly to us because we're cops. But to a, a member of the jury, you might say, hmm, well, yeah, maybe maybe there's if there's a mistake there or we're assuming he's a criminal because of that, maybe we're jumping the gun on other things. You just hope that the DNA evidence and the electronic evidence is so overwhelming that it kind of tips anyone who is like, you know, a doubting Thomas uh, or a conspiracy theorist to believe that, oh, it's got to be this guy. It, it just has to be this guy. SCCC, circumstantial evidence to a man that's practiced law is actually more binding and harder to get away from than an eyewitness because sometimes the eyes can be mistaken. Jim Garrison. Very good. Very good point. Good, uh, uh, right? Abso- absolutely. It's. Uh, let me play a little bit of this. I like this guy, uh, Joseph Scott Morgan. Volume, Bill. Well, at that point in time, you want to keep him, you know, secured. Obviously, that's that's going to be part and parcel of this. And I would imagine if they haven't done it already, they may have done this in Pennsylvania. They are going to request from him some type of biological sample. And generally, that's going to consist of them doing a buccal mucosal swab uh, mm-hmm. or a cheek scraping. Some people refer to it as that to collect it from the specific source. And so they're going to go back as a confirmatory at that point in time uh, to, you know, kind of shore things up. Here's one more piece to this that we have to keep keep in mind. There's a whole bounty of evidence that has yet to come forward. And, you know, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm very interested in as a forensic science guy is that car. Because in my opinion, that car did not make it back to Idaho. More than likely, either working with Pennsylvania State Police or the FBI, that vehicle would have gone or has gone to an evidence processing location that has a garage, Jesse. And right now, they are taking this thing apart from stem to stern. Trust me on this. And they are going through that car because I have contended all along that this car, obviously, it's going to have Koberger's DNA in it. You would expect that to be there. But if they get in that car and they find any DNA that's associated with these poor kids that mm. were slaughtered in that house, 
This is important. My contention right. has been is that that car is a rolling crime scene in and of itself. And it has yeah. to be handled with kit gloves at this point. So they're going to take this thing apart piece by piece, and they're going to use every kind of technology that you can imagine on this thing, everything from alternative lighting to Luminol right. or Blue Star or whatever they're using. They're going to take samples from all inside of this thing. The headliner's coming out. The seats are coming out. Everything, the gear lever. They're going to take a look at the carpet, the substrata beneath the carpet, everything, because it doesn't matter how hard you try to right. clean one of these things, you are not going to escape what we're capable of doing in forensics and recovering molecular, molecular evidence. Brilliant, right? I like we've been you. saying that all along, that he could clean that car till the cows come home. There's another expression. Someone tell me when the, when the cows are coming home. He could clean that car till the cows come home. And he's not going to be able to get rid of all the trace evidence. And Dr. Edmund Locard, Locard's principle of exchange, right? And he had to have gotten some blood from the victims on himself. And he, in turn, had to exchange some of his, his DNA, his hair, his fibers, leaving it at the crime scene. So that's Locard's principle of exchange, not theory, as I was corrected. The principle is much more powerful than a theory. Professor Mike, what do you think? You know, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we don't know really what the, um, the results of the uh, search of his Washington State University apartment are. But I am hoping that he, when he drove back that morning, that he went to his apartment he probably had that one of those suits, those dickies, whatever you call it, that on. He took that off. If he throws that in the garbage, there still might have been some might stuff that drop off of that onto his carpet or onto a chair or onto a, if he got changed in the bedroom on, on top of his uh, on top of his blanket. You know, there's uh, that sort of thing. So the idea that he's going to leave evidence there at the house is wonderful, and I hope that there that he probably may have left evidence at his home while he was figuring out a way to get away with it. I'm going to just take off the gloves. I'm going to take off the mask. I'm going to take off the hat. I'm going to take off the dicky. I'm going to throw into a garbage bag and dump it. Yeah, you can, you can do that. And, but you're still going to leave. Something's going to fall off a piece of hair, uh, some skin cells, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so I think that uh, he's probably at this point there, they've gone over all of that information. They've gone over that car. They've got their DNA analysis done. And we're all just hoping that come June that we'll find out what was left at the apartment. And if there is some sort of uh, one of the girls or Mr. Chapin's DNA at Koberger's apartment, that's another, you know, a nail in his coffin. Slam dunk. Francesca, you're getting mentioned twice in one recording here, asking a good question. Being that the father was in the vehicle, does that change the dynamic? If it was a rolling crime scene, that police off the cuff could be accessory. I'm going to let you answer that, Phil. No, I don't think that he's an accessory to anything. I mean, unless he's uh, somehow helping uh, Brian uh, dispose of evidence or cover up, uh, you know, uh, criminal activity that was uh, done. Uh, if he helped, uh, you know, maybe getting rid of uh, something in the car or helping clean the car. But I really don't think uh, he could be an accessory to that just by the mere fact that he was in the car. Good job, Phil. Duty Ron, thank you for the $5 super chat. 
Even Duty Ron's a fan. Great discussion, gentlemen. Thank you, Duty Ron. You know, we were trying we were trying to cover all aspects of this, and there's so much powerful evidence that you know we talked about the, uh, the electronic the evidence, the geofencing, uh, the vehicle, uh, the 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 potential DNA, of course, that that physical evidence, and there's so much powerful. We even didn't talk about the, the car in itself with the computer in the car and the potential way that that can uh, be uh, some more circumstantial evidence against Brian Koberger. And then, of course, we're going to get to the fact that he, his behavior, his behavior, he was getting fired from his job. Well, he didn't know it yet, because but in September and October of 2022, the groundwork had been laid for him to lose his job as a teaching assistant at Washington State University. And that was all of that was interconnected with his probably the money he got to become a, a, a doctor, a PhD, and also the money he got for housing. That was all interconnected. So if he lost his TA job, everything else was going to fall like a house of cards. Professor Mike. Yeah, Billy, um, thinking about that, um, that information about how he was, uh, we've talked about it. We, to us as police officers, as detectives, this seems like a slam dunk. This is absolutely relevant to the issue of whether or not he committed these, these crimes, these homicides. However, uh, you know, only relevant and reliable information is going to be coming in at the trial. So the prosecution is going to be challenged by the defense that all, and the defense is going to maintain that all of the actions of, that Koberger had, all the problems that he had with his, uh, with his supervisors at WSU, with his students at WSU, male or female, all of his actions there have actually nothing to do with any sort of possible homicide he's alleged to have committed there. It's irrelevant and it's unreliable and it's all subject to conjecture and emotion. Um, and so the prosecution is going to have to answer that and by saying it's all goes to his state of mind. And it's not a slam dunk. That judge could actually deny the admission of any evidence uh, talking about his issues at WSU as being unreliable and conjecture. How does it identify the killer in, in Idaho? If it doesn't, I'm not, I don't want it in the, in the courtroom. It's going to confuse people. That may happen. That may happen. Or the judge may limit the amount of WSU issues, evidence that he had. It, that's not a slam dunk. We as police officers see it as a logical uh, ingredient in the homicide. But a judge may say that's too much conjecture and it, it may confuse the jury. So that's going to be very difficult. Uh, and we hope that it comes in to answer the question, what was his state of mind? Uh, but we're not sure. Absolutely. Let Billy. me play a little bit of Ashley Banfield talking about him. It is dated uh, December the 19th, 2022. It starts this way. Um, Mr. Koberger, I am writing this letter to formally inform you of the termination of your teaching assistantship with the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology, effective December 31st, 2022. In keeping with the WSU Graduate Student Handbook, chapters 9G2, remember that, and 12E3, remember that, below is the list of events that led to you being deficient 
on the following contingency clause of your funding. Quote, maintaining satisfactory progress in fulfilling assistantship service requirements and duties. On September 23rd, 2022, you had an altercation with the faculty you support as a TA, Professor Snyder. I met with you on October 3rd to discuss norms of professional behavior. On October 21st, Professor Snyder emailed you about the ways in which you had failed to meet your expectations as a TA thus far in the semester. As a result, on November 2, Graduate Director Willits and I met with you to discuss an improvement plan, which you agreed to, and I shared with you in an email dated November 3rd. We met again December 7th, this time with a professor, Professor Snyder, as well as Dr. So we know that, obviously, December 7th, uh, when he formally got fired, but the murders were committed November 13th. So he was on, you know, he was on very thin ice and he knew it and he knew he was probably going to get fired. So did that create the state of mind for a normal person if they had were going to lose a job or, or a PhD, uh, you know, the potential to get a PhD over their behavior? I don't think they would go out and kill four people, but I, I don't think he was normal. But uh, if there is such a thing as normal, but he... Um, he definitely uh, knew that his life was falling apart. Billy, I want to go into prosecution mode for a second. I bring in a medical expert and I ask, what's the definition of a sociopath? A person with personality disorder manifesting itself into extreme antisocial attitudes and behavior leading to a lack of conscience. Then I talk to the owner of the Pennsylvania a Brewing Company of Pennsylvania, which was a bar that Brian uh, frequented. Uh, he was in the computer. They put in the computer. He was harassing women, sits alone, drinks by himself, uh, obsesses. Then I bring in the past drug problem. We also talk about that he was uh, following students from uh, the TA job all the way to the parking lot and harassing women. Women felt uncomfortable. I think if you put all of those components together, together you get to uh, bring into the fact that you believe he was a sociopath. No, absolutely. Uh, look, we I, I don't think uh, the behavioral aspect of this case is really going to have a hell of a lot to do with the prosecution. I've said that before. I've uh, I said it on someone else's show and I wasn't too popular about saying it. But uh, that's that's who I am. You know, <laughs> I can't hide who I am, you know. The but, evidence, uh, the evidence, the evidence, as they say. Yeah, that's, 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 the, way I, that's, that's the way I look at it. Our, you know, guys, we're at uh, an hour and 22 minutes. Mike, final thoughts. Now, just for uh, the viewers to, again, be patient. And uh, we'll see about the uh, scientific evidence in June. Uh, and I think that will uh, give people confidence that the police did a fabulous job and do indeed have the actual killer of those four innocent young people in Idaho. 100%. Phil, final thoughts. Uh, I'm glad that we sort of analyzed and we took apart some of the evidence. There was the DNA evidence on the knife sheet, which I wanted to go from a defense side and talk about how there was no serial number on the sheet. Perhaps it was uh, handled by him in a store or something like that, but we can get into that to another time. There's also explanations for him throwing out garbage uh, at four o'clock in the morning. You know, uh, We'll get into that for another time. Just one last time, I'd like to read the victim's names. Uh, Madison Mogan, 21, Kaylee Gonzalez, 21, 
Ethan Chapin, 20, and Zana Canoodle, 20. May they rest in peace, and uh, I want justice, and we should all hope for justice for those victims and their families. You know, Phil, 100%, and I'm glad that you mentioned their names because we don't, uh, and it's up on the screen right now. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned them because sometimes when we do this show and others do the show, we forget that this is about them and their families, and we hope to bring their memories and their families justice at the end of this case. Folks, I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. This is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Uh, we love our fans, our friends, our subscribers. Have a great night and be safe, everyone. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.